Good morning, everybody, and thank you for listening in. You are listening to a special subscriber-only bonus edition of Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, broadcasting from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot. Uh, it is incredibly early in the morning. It's about 7 o'clock as I record this, which I know is not early for some of y'all, but typically this is the time I wake up. But I've already been up, fed the dog, walked the dog, got a recording, get up, uh, set up, and also recorded a, uh, a behind-the-scenes video cast for our uh, Patreon folks. So I'm exhausted, but it's something where, one, I promised y'all on Monday's episode that we were going to have a bonus episode this week, and I'm a man of my word. And on top of it, we need to do another What the Fisk, WT Fisk, answering some of your questions. My, I, my goal when I started the podcast was that every fourth episode would be listener questions, but there's been so much news the past three weeks that I've not had a chance to do that, and we're already at a full page of notes uh, for this coming Monday's podcast, and the week is only halfway done. So I decided that we're going to do a bonus episode with a handful of listener questions and go from there. Before we get into those details, though, of course, please make sure that you join the conversation online. Uh, the podcast Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. We use the hashtag Fisk. That is hashtag F-S-C-K for the questions. Um, please make sure to tweet them at me when you can because I rely on those. If you don't want to have your name publicly attached to the question, uh, you can also send it to the direct messages. The DMs are open. So our first question for this special bonus episode comes from at CNNMD. Uh, I'm assuming CN is her initials and she's in Maryland. But it says, I would love for at Fiskamall to cover how and when to hire a lawyer. If something happened, I only know to call the guy we had do our wills. And that is a very complex question because there are just so many areas of law to deal with. Uh, so I'm going to handle the when first. Usually what I tell folks is if you have something where you could potentially become involved with the court system in any capacity, you should have a lawyer. Not just because lawyers help protect you, um, but you know, like in the criminal context, I tell my clients to shut the fuck up instead of talking to police. But even in non-criminal contexts, a lawyer who understands the laws that apply, the rules of court, um, the regulations on a given area, they help a lot of things go more smoothly than doing it yourself. And I know y'all expect me to say that because I'm a lawyer, but I have seen a lot of people try and do it themselves. We call that going pro se. Um, and it just, it's, it's very difficult to work out well because as we mentioned a couple podcasts ago, there are a lot of concepts that make intuitive sense when you read them. But then in the context of the law, they don't really mean what you would think they mean. You know, we talked about terms of art, canons of construction, that type of stuff. That's not something a lot of lay people understand. They look at a law and they think that's it. Um, I had a, a case against a guy who went pro se who was actually very intelligent, uh, had a PhD, read the law. I saw he had gone through the rules of procedure and everything else. Um, but there were still pieces of it that he didn't know as a layperson that I knew as a lawyer. So, it's just something where having a lawyer helps because they teach us stuff 
in law school that you're not going to want to spend three years and however many thousands of dollars learning for yourself. It's just not terribly efficient. So if you think there's something where you could become involved with the court system, you want a lawyer. So in the context of criminal stuff, if you have committed a crime, call a lawyer just in case the police decide to come knocking. Uh, in the case of your kids or your possessions, you should always have a will on hand just in case you die unexpectedly. Um, you know, if you think you might get separated from your spouse, if you can't work it out and y'all have tried to fix it, go get a lawyer soon afterwards, you know, but it's something where that's a judgment call you've got to make based on your particular needs. I will say this, if you want to start a business, get a lawyer first. That should be one of your first expenses because part of my law practice, it's about half criminal defense work, doing a lot of work with students and the other half works with entrepreneurs. And I've spent more time fixing and, you know, uh, documents that create organizations like your articles of incorporation, your articles of organization, uh, fixing your corporate bylaws. Um, I have spent a lot of time doing that, and I've got to build clients for that. You know, it's something where it's not free for me to fix it, but I've seen things that have gotten so screwed up, and in some cases, people have lost a lot of money on it. You know, I had one client where he had started his business on his own, neglected to have the paperwork. There was an error in the paperwork that he didn't notice, never fixed it ended up getting sued. And because of that error in the paperwork, the other side was able to obtain what is called a default judgment against him. And when I tried to have that judgment set aside, because he noticed that his money had been taken from his bank account, uh, the judge essentially said, sorry, it's on the business owner to follow these corporate formalities. So we lost that hearing, and I appealed it to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals essentially said the trial judge was right. You know, you can't fix the fact that your client's an idiot. So make sure that if you want to start a business, talk to a lawyer first. Now, the question, of course, becomes, how do you find a good lawyer? And there are a bazillion different options you can rely on. Um, the main one, frankly, is Google and the Internet. There's a lot of spots that where you can have lawyer reviews, uh, Google reviews has a lot of them. Uh, Facebook, if they have a Facebook page, will have some. The most prominent one in terms of Google search results is a website called Avvo, A-V-V-O dot com. Disclaimer, I advertise on the Avvo site. Uh, a lot of other lawyers do too because they, you know, it's kind of a love-hate relationship with the company. What they do is when people pass the bar and they end up in a state database of lawyers, Avo compiles all of those databases and automatically creates a profile for each lawyer. So a client can leave a review for a lawyer regardless of whether the lawyer has a profile that they themselves control or not. Avo controls the default profiles for everybody until you claim it. So it's something where for us as lawyers, you know, we're almost incentivized to claim the profile to make sure that we can make it look nice and try and stand out among our peers. Um, and that helps Avo, of course, get even better Google results. So it's something where that's a good place to go to get details. Now, there are, of course, some caveats. Because every lawyer that is in like a solo or small practice tries to use Avo to get more clients, you're almost always only going to see the best stuff. Most of the client reviews are only favorable client reviews. So Avo is helpful, but it's not determinative. Um, but definitely look at what you can find on the internet for them. Check the licensing authority for each state to see if the lawyer has ever been disciplined. 
Uh, for example, in North Carolina, we have what is called the North Carolina State Bar. That is the state agency that licenses lawyers. Their website is ncbar.gov, and you can pull up every single lawyer in the state and see whether or not they've ever gotten in trouble before. Um, I would also talk with, if you have friends who have had experience with that particular type of law, you know, get their feedback for it. I would never touch domestic law in my life because of the drama, but what I have found is that when people come to me with criminal issues and they need a recommendation for a domestic lawyer, usually they have asked their friends about other domestic lawyers. And what you'll find is that in a typical city, there will be like somewhere between two to six really, really, really highly regarded lawyers in a given field, doesn't matter what it is, and you tend to hear the same names over and over and over again. Um, so definitely talk to your friends and, you know, frankly, shop around. It's something where a lot of lawyers will offer free consultations or low cost consultations. And if you pick a lawyer and you go meet them and you either meet with a paralegal and that's it, or the lawyer kind of seems like a jerk, or you just don't get a good vibe, go hire somebody else. You know, I have, I have that happen to our firm pretty regularly. Uh, in my case, folks tend to like me as a person until I tell them how much it's going to cost and they go hire someone else. And that doesn't hurt my feelings. We know that's all part of the game. Um, that's part of business. That's part of being a solo or small firm lawyer. It's part of, in my case, working in criminal defense, where when you're charged here, uh, a bunch of people send you letters offering their services. So that's no big deal. So as far as how to hire a lawyer, definitely start with the internet. Consider the state regulatory agency. Shop around. If you still can't find somebody, a lot of states will have bar associations. So you have the state bars, which are the regulatory agencies. You have the bar associations, which are voluntary groups that usually provide legal education to lawyers or lobby the legislature for stuff. Uh, a lot of them have what are called lawyer referral services where you can go to their website or call them and say, hey, I have this particular type of issue and I can't find a lawyer who can help me. Can you give me a suggestion? And usually what they'll do is there'll be a, a fixed number of lawyers that participate in the service and whoever the next lawyer is in the line, uh, they'll give you that person's information. You can go talk to them. If you don't hire them, you can come back and get another one and so on down the line. So that covers kind of the how and the when. Um, Main thing is, again, make sure that you're comfortable with your hiring decision because, you know, especially when I started, I had a benefit over a lot of my competitors in that I had dropped out of college. And I know it seems kind of weird to be a benefit, but during those five years where I was a college dropout, I did a lot of work in the legal system. I was a file clerk. I was a paralegal. I worked for the uh, courts. And that gave me a leg up in terms of my relationships with other lawyers and judges I needed to work with and on understanding the process. But at the same time, a lot of people were concerned about hiring me because I was young, I was new. So you've got to be willing to be comfortable with your lawyer. And if you're, with, you're talking to a lawyer who you're not comfortable with, you got to go find somebody else because there are a few things that are more frustrating for both the client and the lawyer than a relationship that doesn't work out well because you don't trust them or you don't like them or there's some kind of other issue there. So at CNNMD, thank you very much for the question. I hope that answered it. And if you have any follow-ups, please feel free to tweet me. Our next question comes from at Georgia Wonk, who asks, during Justice Gorsuch's hearings, he repeatedly said or implied that if Congress didn't like a law that he had interpreted a certain way, that Congress should change it. 
But if a law is constitutional, can Congress just get rid of it? Isn't outlawing a constitutionally protected law unconstitutional? So there's a, there's a bit of a jumble there at the end. Um, the answer to the first question essentially is yes. So remember, second rule of Fisk, you always start at the source. And under the United States Constitution, it lays out the powers of the different branches. And Article 1 relates to the Congress itself, relates to the legislative power um, of the federal government. And when you're looking at the Constitution, the thing that you have to keep in mind is that the federal government was designed to be a government of limited and enumerated powers. So on the limited piece, it's not something that you just kind of have, you know, what's called common law police powers. Um, so a state has what is called police powers that doesn't relate to specifically police. What that means is there are certain areas of law where the states are presumed to have what is called plenary or automatic or natural authority over the subject area. So, for example, marriage falls under a state's police powers. Uh, the police tend to fall under the state's police powers. Um, anything that's not specifically identified as being a federal power or specifically prohibited as a state power uh, falls under the state's police powers to do things. So as you're reading through the Constitution, that's something you've got to keep in mind is that the federal government only has those particular um, powers that are expressly put into it and the, that's clear in the text itself. So, for example, you go to Article 1, Section 1, the text reads, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. So that's your baseline. You start with the fact that there's only limited legislative power in the federal government, but all of that legislative power that is taken belongs to the Congress. So starting with that as your baseline... There are then prohibitions on what Congress is not allowed to do. So, for example, there's a prohibition where Congress cannot enact what is called a ex post facto law, which means a law passed after the act it takes place and that's used to punish you. No ex post facto laws are allowed. So those types of prohibitions, the prohibition on bills of attainder and ex post facto laws, the prohibition on suspending the writ of habeas corpus, uh, the prohibition on granting any title of nobility, those are baked into the Constitution's body itself. You can see them in Article 1, Section 9. They were the things that were conceived of at the very beginning. And then you have, of course, the Bill of Rights that includes additional prohibitions on what Congress can do. So, for example, the very first words of the First Amendment are, Congress shall make no law, respecting establishment of religion, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, abridging the press, speech, etc., etc. Um, so those are in there. And then you have the later amendments, like the Civil War amendments. The 14th Amendment provides that no person shall be denied the equal protection of the laws. So what you then see is case decisions from the courts explaining what that means. What does equal protection entail? Um, so even though Congress has all the legislative authority that was taken for the federal government, there are limitations within the body of the Constitution, there are limitations within the amendments of the Constitution, and there are limitations imposed by case decision interpreting those particular amendments. So Congress is prevented from doing something that is unconstitutional, but it has no prohibition at all from ever changing something that is constitutional. So as long as there's something that is legal there, 
they can get rid of it, they can add to it, they can modify it, provided that that addition or that deletion or that modification is not itself an unconstitutional act. So we have talked a long time ago about kind of the basics of due process, where the government can't just take something away from you if you have a property interest or a liberty interest or a life interest. They can't take that away without giving you some form of due process, a hearing of some kind, notice of the deprivation, and a chance to be heard on it by someone who is neutral. Um, So in the case of congressional action, if there is a law that is in place that is legal, the Congress is free to modify it But if that modification results in people being deprived of property or liberty interests that they're entitled to, um, there's sometimes got to be a hearing on it. Sometimes the law change itself will be held to be unconstitutional, even though the ability to amend the law is itself allowed. I don't know if that made sense, but essentially the the hypothetical that uh, you had mentioned, this notion that modifying a constitutional law is prohibited. It's actually in reverse. You can you can modify any law at all, except where those modifications would run up against one of the prohibitions within the Constitution itself. So I hope that makes sense. At Georgia Wonk, thank you for the question. Uh, if it didn't make sense, just let me know and I can follow up on it later on. Um, next question relates to this clip from a uh, podcast episode a few weeks back. If that doesn't become a gun-grabbing clarion call for the quote-unquote Republican president to try and infringe on your Second Amendment rights, I don't know what is. Now, bear in mind, this guy was endorsed by the NRA. So I'm going to go ahead and make sure to buy some extra ammo tomorrow just in case. Now, I did end up going buying the ammo. It wasn't tomorrow. It ended up being later that week. But one of the questions that was asked was, what's your carry? What weapon do I happen to use on a regular basis? And I happen to use this one. Yeah, that doesn't sound nearly as sexy as you would think it sounds on TV. Uh, it is a Smith & Wesson M&P 9. So M&P stands for Military and Police, and 9 is the caliber. It's a 9mm. It uh, came with three magazines. They hold 17 rounds apiece. And it's a, it's a nice weapon. It feels good in your hand. It's easy to shoot. Um, it, I actually, frankly, prefer a smaller caliber. I'm partial to a 22, um, mostly because I'm fairly accurate in general. But I like the lower kick of a 22. So my, my thinking is the goal is to get as many rounds downrange as possible on target. Uh, I can do that fine with a 9. I can do that better with a 22. So if I had to pick between the two, uh, the smaller caliber makes more sense. But I realize not everyone is partial to that. You have people that will prefer 45 or you know something with a lot of kickback. That's not me. I, I prefer if I'm target shooting, it's easy to be on target readily. And if, God forbid, I ever have to use it because I do have a concealed weapons permit, I do carry it fairly often. Um, you want to make sure that you hit whatever it is that you're aiming at because, God forbid, you end up trying to uh, defend somebody and you end up doing like the police did in New York City and injuring a bunch of innocent bystanders instead. So to the question of what is my carry, uh, I do carry concealed a Smith & Wesson m 9 with 17 rounds in the magazine and one in the chamber. So our last listener question for this episode of What the Fisk comes from at Yasagumi, who writes, Enjoyed the Law 140 on precedent. As an economist, I go to Coase problem of social cost. Meaning, often it doesn't matter what the rule is, but we want some rule. Precedent is arbitrary, but makes a rule. My question, why do lawyers think precedent is so great? 
uh, I would push back on the idea that precedent is arbitrary. It's something where we mentioned the canons of construction in a prior podcast. Um, there are certain rules themselves, these ancient Latin phrases uh, that are applied to statutes that the Congress, our legislators, have written. So you don't have a lot of arbitrariness. I mean, it's something where they, they can look that way when you're looking at them from the outside. But if you focus on kind of the lineage of case law over time and how precedent does change, um, it's something where you can kind of see a method to the madness. But to the question of why do lawyers think precedent is so great, a lot of it is that there needs to be predictability when it comes to dealing with legal issues because so much in the law uh, is very like grave. You know, you're either talking about someone potentially going to jail and losing their liberty or you're fighting over who's going to get the kids or you're having an issue of, you know, what what is the rules of the game that we apply when we're creating businesses and doing transactions between each other. So you'll have like the uniform commercial code that is in almost every state in the country governing uh, the regulations when you're buying goods. How are those going to be interpreted? So the initial, what we call questions of first impression, something that has never come before the court before, um, those are very serious issues. They're, they're given a great deal of weight, but that's not the typical legal challenge. The vast majority of stuff is issues that have already been hashed out. We know what the statute is intended to mean. We know how it's supposed to be applied. And the lower courts deal with dozens upon dozens upon dozens of appeals from the trial courts on issues that are already really settled. You appeal just because you have a right to an appeal and you pray that maybe at some point you get a sympathetic judge that rules in a different direction. Um, so, for example, I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I had a client who screwed up, did not follow the rules for running a business, and as a result, lost quite a bit of money. After we lost that hearing, I appealed, and I did what I thought was a fairly good job on that appeal, but I knew when we appealed that we were toast. I knew when I took the case that we were toast. It's just something where I didn't think it was fair that he had that particular outcome, but given the law and given the fact that he screwed up, I knew that was going to be the end result. You know, So having that precedent available, whether it's in your favor or not, makes it fairly easy to be able to tell a client hey, these are your odds of winning or losing. This is going to be the likely outcome. But if we're going to have a different outcome, here's the angle we're going to go at to attack it. Your odds of getting that outcome are like, you know, maybe 5% at best. Then you can factor in the given outcome, the odds of that given outcome. And you can kind of calculate, you know, what an economist, I guess, would call an expected value for a given course of action. So I think that's the main benefit to precedent is that it provides predictability to people to help govern their interactions. And more importantly, it provides guidance for the lower level appellate courts and the trial courts themselves on how to deal with the litany of cases that even though they're different facts, the legally significant facts are the exact same. So I'm sure there will be other lawyers that will give you different reasons. But, you know, if you compare, for example, our common law system where precedent is really binding uh, and it's true of any uh, former British colony. So America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the UK. 
um, compare that to some of the um, civil law jurisdictions where there is no real precedent and everything relates to what is written in the statute at the time, um, you'll find a lot more efficiency, a lot more fluidity in a common law jurisdiction because the law does change, but it changes rarely. The changes tend to be deliberate. Um, and that provides kind of a framework for everyone else to uh, operate under. Now, I'm not an economist. My, uh, I had a minor in economics, but it's not something that I know well enough to talk about uh, any coast theories or anything like that. And I'm probably mispronouncing his name, to be honest with you. Um, but to me, that is the main benefit that I derive from precedent, is that when a client comes to me and says, I got caught with marijuana in a book bag in the trunk of my car, I can know fairly easily whether his rights were violated in that search being conducted or if the search was legitimate and it's something where we need to focus on trying to negotiate a plea agreement or just minimizing the damages to him. I couldn't do that if precedent wasn't a thing because we'd basically be really relitigating the meaning of the Fourth Amendment with every single case that came across my door. So that is from at Yasagumi. Uh, those are the four questions that I'm covering in What the Fisk Volume 2. Thank you to everyone who asked one. Uh, we've got other questions. I will promise you I will get to them in future uh, episodes. So don't feel shy about uh, asking a question just because I can't get to it right away. I will get to it. I flagged them and I put them in a little notepad file uh, for future reference. But thank you so much for asking the questions. Thank you for listening. If you have other questions in the future, again, the Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. The hashtag is hashtag Fisk. That is hashtag F-S-C-K. I hope you will continue being part of the conversation. And thank you tremendously for listening to this special subscriber-only bonus episode of What the Fisk Volume 2. I hope all of you have a terrific weekend ahead, and we will be back with our next regular episode this coming Monday. (laughs) Thank you.